that kind of a week too. When we have that experience, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. Even when you are engaged in God's vision for your life and you have pressed out beyond your comfort zone and you're, you're living on the edge, you can become overwhelmed. For example, that happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 18. You read there about Paul going to the city of Corinth and he's carrying out the vision God had given him, his heavenly vision. And so he, he's preaching the gospel to the Jew first in the synagogue and, and they reject the message and so he turns to the Gentiles. And as a result of Paul proclaiming Christ in the city of Corinth, the people were being saved, even some of the leaders of the very synagogue where he had begun preaching. And then apparently something happened and Paul was afraid. And it says there that Jesus appeared to him in a vision. And basically what Jesus said to him in the vision was, Paul, don't be afraid. I am with you. Stay with the plan. Keep on preaching. You see, even the Apostle Paul felt overwhelmed by something that happened in his life as he was carrying out the vision. One of the most encouraging aspects of living on the edge is God's promise that you're never going to be alone while you're, you're doing that. Because, you see, God himself lives on the edge of your comfort zone. If God somehow seems to be a little distant to you, perhaps a question you ought to ask yourself is, am I living on the edge or am I back in the cushy chair of my comfort zone, feeling safe about my life? The place where we will find the greatest intimacy with God is out there on the edge where we feel like we're risking it. As Paul was with, as God rather was with Paul and Nehemiah, so the Lord is with you. And his gracious hand is upon you. So don't be overwhelmed. Stay with that task or that vision that God has given to you. He is with you in it. He is with you in it. And to me, that's an amazing thought, this idea that God is partnering with us in our lives. And yet Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we are God's fellow workers. And he wrote of his good friend Timothy as his brother and called him God's fellow worker. God's fellow worker. For his work in the world to bring the nations to know him, God chooses to enter into a joint venture with you and with me. I like what the chaplain or the recent chaplain of the Senate, Lloyd John Ogilvie said. Very simple statement, but it, it sums it up. He says, without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. That says it well. Without God, we can't. Without us, he won't. Living on the edge with your vision means dreaming of something that only God can do and then stepping out in faith to work with Him. 
What heaven-inspired vision or task or purpose is percolating in your heart this morning? Some God-sized dream that He has placed there. What is it that is calling for your very best? What are you dreaming about that potentially risks the heaven-provided resources that you have, your influence, your money, your position, your abilities? Working on your God-given task, you never work alone. You never work alone. When you do what you can, God will do the rest. I want you to notice the two parts of that, that idea. When you do what you can, you have a part. Then God will do the rest. God has a part. For example, God told Noah to build the boat. God didn't just zap a boat into existence. He let Noah and his sons work for over a hundred years to build this craft. But God brought the animals, and God shut the door to it. Noah did his part, then God did his part. I think of David, who saw Goliath challenging the armies of Israel and felt that that was a terrible shame uh, to Israel. And so he went to defy Goliath, but notice that he picked up some stones before he went out there. He took his sling with him. It was God who killed Goliath. But David had a part in it. He slung a stone that was directed by God to the very weak part of the helmet of Goliath, and he fell dead. When you do what you can, God will do the rest. A leader is someone who uses his God-given role and resources to get God's work done. You say, well, I'm not a leader. Oh, yes, you are. In some place in your life, you are a leader. Maybe you are the parent of some toddlers. You're a leader. Maybe you're the CEO of a company. You're a leader. Maybe you manage a group of janitors. Or you're a school teacher with children in your room every day of the week. You are a leader. A leader is someone who uses his God-given role and resources to get God's work done. To achieve it, God calls us to live on the edge and in doing that to forsake our security zone so that we can experience Him. He lives on the edge. These are some of the things we're learning in our study of the book of Nehemiah. And today we turn to chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, where we're going to think about living on the edge with our responsibility. Now, in the idea we're dealing with this morning, I'm saying this. You have a part, and God has a part in this vision. What is your part? What is your part? It is to be responsible. Be responsible. Prayerfully plan what you need to do to follow through with what God has put on your heart. Think through this opportunity or this problem or this task that is the vision God has you focused on. 
For Nehemiah, of course, that was the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. That's where his heart was. That was his God-assigned dream, to rebuild those walls. And what we see here in the second chapter in particular, but also in the first, is that Nehemiah took responsibility for this vision. There is a, a common problem-solving process that is called steps. It's a very flexible process by which to deal with issues in your life or problems or, or uh, tasks that you have at hand. It can be a complex problem. It can be a, a simple task that you have. But here are some steps that you can take to be responsible for what God has given you to do. These, uh, these steps are sometimes summarized in other ways, but uh, these are very common, and there are large corporations that use the very uh, steps that I'm going to share with you this morning. The very first thing you need to do when you have a task, when you, you have an opportunity or a vision, is this. You need to do some situation analysis. Situation analysis. What is happening and why? In other words, what is the data surrounding this? There's a professor in a law school in Pennsylvania who for 20 years would begin the first day of class every year by putting two numbers on the board in front of him. The numbers four and two. He would write it up there, four and two. And he would turn to the freshman students and he would say, now, what is the solution? And there would be some students who would say, it's two, it's two. Others would say, oh, no, no, it, it's six. Others would, would say, it's, it's eight, that's the solution. And the professor would then stop them and say, students, the very first thing you must do when confronted with something is to find out what the problem is. You see, some of them saw a plus sign, some of them saw a minus, and some of them saw a multiplication sign. But they didn't take time to understand what the problem was. Don't try to solve a problem or meet a need before you know what it is. Have you ever tried to figure out a problem without really understanding it? Well, of course, we've all been there. Now, in, in Nehemiah's case, what was the situation? Well, the returned exiles are in great trouble and disgrace, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 3. That's a reality. That's some data for him. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And the third piece of data is its gates have been burned with fire. Now, that was the data. That was the situation. That was what was happening as much as Nehemiah understood. And so he then traveled to Jerusalem. And here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, it says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And so he's telling us he's riding on a donkey or a horse or something. He says, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. 
which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up by the valley, by, uh, up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So what is Nehemiah doing here? He's out reconnoitering. He's, he's analyzing the situation even further. He wants to know the details. And what I want to say to you is this. When you think you understand what the vision is that God's laid on your heart, when you have this opportunity that seems to come from God to you, the first thing that you need to do is to test your vision, look at that opportunity against reality. You need to analyze the situation. You need to get the data so that you know more precisely what you're dealing with. The second step in this process of problem solving is also found in Nehemiah. It is to set some objectives. What is it that needs to happen here? What outcomes do you hope to realize because of your work? Well, Nehemiah tells us in chapter 2 and verse 5 that he intended to rebuild the defenses of the city. He wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was an objective that he had in light of the situation. Now, there's also an assumption here that he has another objective, and that is to restore the honor of Jerusalem and its inhabitants because they've been disgraced by the situation of the city. And so his overarching objective is to restore the honor of this city and to its inhabitants, and in doing that, to honor God. So those are his objectives. Step number three in the process is to figure out the strategies. How should these objectives happen? What approach should be taken in order to deal with the vision or the, the problem or the purpose that God has put before you? What are the strategies? This is important, to figure out the strategies. The story is told about some folks who were attending a conference uh, in San Francisco for Mensa. Do you know what Mensa is? It's for smart people. You're supposed to have uh, an IQ of 140 or higher to belong to this organization. I've never even researched what it means to uh, figure out what that means. No need in it. <clears throat> They were meeting in San Francisco, and a group of them went to a coffee shop. And arriving at the coffee shop, they sat down at the table, and they noticed that there was salt in the pepper shaker, and there was pepper in the salt shaker. And so being the brilliant people they were, they decided they need to figure out a way to resolve this problem without pouring out the salt or the pepper and then pouring it back in the containers using their hands. And so they wanted to use just, just the implements that were there at the table to accomplish this task. 
and there was a spoon, and there was a straw, and there was a saucer. And so they talked for, for some time regarding various strategies to figure out how to accomplish this great task. And finally, they had it down. And to impress the waitress, they called her over to the table, and they explained what the problem was. And they started to tell her what their solution was, and she interrupted them. She said, oh, she said, that's no problem. And she took the top off the salt shaker and put it on the pepper shaker and took the top off the pepper shaker and put it on the salt paper uh, shaker. She solved the problem. She had the right strategy. Well, once you have understood what your objectives are with this, this problem, let's say, you need to figure out what your strategies will be. For Nehemiah, he knew that it meant personal involvement. There was no way this was going to be resolved without him going personally to the city of Jerusalem. Secondly, he knew there were going to have to be some resources. This was a huge task to rebuild the wall of the city and its gates and to do that in the context of a lot of enemies who did not want to see that happen. Thirdly, he knew that workers were going to have to be enlisted to get the job done. He could not do it by himself. And so that was uh, basically the approach he was going to use. That was, those were his strategies. And so once you figured out your strategies, then you put down a plan. How am I going to do this? How am I going to fulfill this, this uh, strategy plan that I have put in place? What details are going to make it happen? And so you begin to list the activities that will be necessary. Nehemiah tells us what that was. Nehemiah says in his case that uh, his first activity was to present the situation to the king. Present the situation to the king. Now this was all in the context of prayer because that's where he began. But number one, he was going to present the situation to the king. Secondly, he was going to gain the king's assistance some way. This was a long and dangerous traveling uh, journey to get to the city of Jerusalem from where they were. And so he needed to have the king's assistance to get there. Third, he wanted to request materials from the king's resources. That was the only place he knew that he could find them. And fourthly, he knew that he was going to need to organize the exiles for the vision that he had. And so we see that he does that. We're in chapter 2, and let's look at verse 17 where he speaks to the people and he says to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. He explains what the problem is. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start building. Notice that he goes to enlist the people for this fourth activity. He needed to get volunteers. Do you ever need to get volunteers for anything? Do you ever need to find help to accomplish the task that God has given to you? Well, we all do from time to time. Let's notice how Nehemiah does that. First of all, he defines the issue for them. He says, here's the problem. The walls are torn down. The gates are burned. He defines the issue. 
Now, this was not news to them, but they had not seen it as something that could be resolved. They saw it only as a, a situation in which they lived. But he paints for them the issue, and then he casts the vision. He says to them, let's rebuild the walls. Third, he shows the outcome of doing this. He says, we will no longer be in disgrace. He provides the inspiration by telling them about God's gracious hand upon him and what the king had said to him. And then finally, he gains their participation. It says, they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. Notice that. Now, he gives you a good example as to how you too can enlist volunteers. You know, it's not enough to put an announcement in the bulletin that you need this project taken care of, and would you please help us? That's not enough. You need to go through a process if you're going to be effective in recruiting people to join you in a task, and Nehemiah shows you what a five-step process looks like. Well, this is all part of Nehemiah's planning. Number five, plans are made. There's the execution of the plan. How do you make this happen? What actions now will take place? Well, we see it summarized really just in that one brief sentence at the end of verse 18. They began this good work. And so you see, they executed the plan. Nehemiah is a master organizer, manager, planner. He's gone through the steps of a, a, a common problem-solving process, and God has blessed it. In chapter 3, we learn about what this means that they began the work. The whole chapter nearly is dedicated to how Nehemiah divided the wall among the inhabitants, assigning them to teams, and then giving to each team an appropriate portion of the wall for which they were responsible. There were about 45 sections to the wall as he divided it up. There were 40 leaders who were given delegated responsibility with their teams to look after specific portions of the wall. And then the ten gates are also named and the teams that were to repair those. And so they executed the plan that had been put into place using the resources that God had provided. And then the final step in this process of dealing with your problem is tracking. Tracking. A lot of people forget this part. But you need to, in some way, measure the results. What are the results? Well, Nehemiah tells us. He tracked the results. Turn over to chapter 4. Look at verse 6. He says, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. And so he notes here is one measurement. They are half done with the walls. Now, they've done this in the midst of enemies. There were enemies who opposed them. Read about them in the previous five verses. There was Tobiah and Sanballat. Enemies opposed him. He mentions them. That's part of the measurement. 
The wall is half built, but at the same time, we have faced incredible odds. There are adversities, there are obstacles to what we want to do. He records them. But he tells us that he pressed on. He pressed on despite the growing and persistent opposition of these enemies. In response to the opposition, they prayed and they posted guards around the, uh, the perimeter of their work. And then in chapter 6 and verse 15, we come to the end of their work, and it says, So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. The wall was completed. This is another marker, a measurement of their work. It's done in 52 days, and this is absolutely amazing. It is amazing that this wall could be built in that period of time. And in chapter 7, verse 1, he goes on to say, After the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. Another marker. He tells us that the gates were put into place, and the keepers of the gates were then appointed. And then the rest of chapter 7 records the names of the leaders and the contributions which they all made to the work. Isn't that amazing? He follows through in this whole process that uh, only in the last few decades has been formally uh, stated uh, by experts in the field of management. Nehemiah was thousands of years ahead of them. It's just common sense is all it is, really. So Nehemiah did his part. He was responsible. God expects you and me to be responsible, too. We have a part to play. And when we do our part, we follow through with our responsibility, then God will do His part. And what is God's part? Summed up, we might say it is to be faithful. Be faithful. When we do what we can, God will do what we can't. We serve a God who will not fail to advance the vision, the purpose, the task, the dream that He births within us. Now, like Nehemiah, we may need to learn to wait on God's timing. We may need to learn some character lessons as we go through this process, but always God will come through when we do our part. After Nehemiah began to pray, you may not have noticed in the first chapter, he waited for four months before the opportunity was right to speak to the king. God used those four months to birth in Nehemiah a greater understanding of what his work needed to be. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Notice that phrase, what my God had put in my heart. God had put the vision in his heart. God had matured that vision. And now we see that God was faithful to Nehemiah. What did God do? God provided resources and protection through the king. They were given the opportunity to draw wood from the king's forest. Nehemiah was given some army units to go with him on this journey. God provided the resources and the protection because Nehemiah did his part. 
Secondly, God guarded them against their enemies. In chapter 4, verse 20, it says it really well. The end of the verse. Nehemiah says, our God will fight for us. Now, he did what he could do. He put out the guards. They had their swords in hand and their trumpets and so forth. But notice what his confidence was. Our God will fight for us against our enemies. God will always guard you against your enemies when you've done your part. The enemies may not go away. You may still face obstacles, but God will guard you. And finally, God gave the builders unity and success. Nehemiah talks about this a number of times. How God worked in the hearts of the people so that they carried out the work, and God gave them success. The good hand of God was upon them. Back in the 1970s, early 1980s, there was a man named Jim Montgomery here in San Jose. Maybe some of you remember him. Jim Montgomery went about 1985 to the Philippines as a missionary, I believe with O.C. And while he was there, God birthed in his heart a vision. He began to dream of every village in the Philippines and every large city neighborhood in the Philippines having an appropriate church there. A church that would be able to preach the gospel and reach the people. That dream began to bubble in his heart. It bubbled in his heart and he called the dream Dawn. D-A-W-N. It stands for Discipling a Whole Nation. And he, he tried to understand how God would have him organize this, this concept. And things didn't quite seem to work. And uh, he couldn't raise the money that he needed to make it happen. And then God told him, Jim, you're depending upon that house you have back in San Jose as your security. And so he went to the edge of his life, and he came back to San Jose, and he sold the house, and he invested everything that he had in the vision for Don, discipling a whole nation. And at that point, God moved in. Jim had done his part, and now it was God's part. And God has taken that organization not only from the Philippines, but to other nations of the world. They have a headquarters now down in Florida, discipling a whole nation. And what was it that brought that dream to pass? It was a man who was responsible to do his part and who then depended upon God to come through. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I think of a businessman here in San Jose who is developing and selling a software program to businesses that, that brings together some, some very important issues that customer-oriented businesses 
must deal with, simplifies the process for them. And he's attempting to get this off the ground. He, he has done his part, and God is doing his part. But you know what the vision is? It's not to help companies as much as it is to take that software that's being developed and give it to ministries, which are volunteer-based, so that they can do a more effective job, so that we can do a more effective job in managing volunteers. I think of a team of men that uh, I meet with who have a dream. It is a vision to help uh, nations of the world, third world nations, to create an economic engine in their nation. They want to see nations prosper because of the principles that, of capitalism that we have learned here in Silicon Valley. And they're, they're moving out. The plan is in place. There's a lot at risk for this team of people. They're doing their part, and now we are waiting together for God to do His part. But you know what the greater vision is? The greater vision is that in each one of those countries where this dream is fulfilled, the, a part of the revenue that is generated, and the potential is phenomenal, a good deal of that revenue is going to be directed toward church planting and missions in those nations. It's just somebody's dream. God has put it on his heart. And like Nehemiah, he has begun now to live on the edge. This team is living on the edge, waiting for God to come through, and God is not going to fail. Living on the edge is a partnership with God to do His work and to bring Him honor. God was honored in the building of this wall in Nehemiah. Nehemiah in verse 16 says, When all our enemies heard that the wall had been completed, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. You see, God was honored. Where are you living on the edge of your life, partnering with God to do His work and to make His name great? Working on your God-given task, you never work alone. When you do what you can, God will do the rest. Would you pray with me, please? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, do you realize that salvation is a little bit like this too? There's God's part, and then there's your part. God's part is to provide the Savior for you. God's part is to provide for your forgiveness. Your part is to receive it. Even though God has provided the Savior, that Savior does you no good until you receive Him into your heart and into your life. Will you do that today? If you will do your part, God will do His part and bring that forgiveness to your life. 
Would you receive him right now in the quietness of this moment? Will you do your part? And assuming you have done that, child of God, determine in your heart to partner with the Lord. Open your heart to God's dream for you. It may consume your whole life. It may only be a piece of where you are right now. But let God's vision be birthed in you and then be responsible with it. God will be faithful. And Father, I pray that you will write that lesson on our hearts. And I pray that as we close this service, that you will show us that all things are possible for those who trust you, for those who will do their part and then trust you to do your part. You are a God who does not and can never fail. Underscore that within us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team is going to come now as we sing this song that we all...